0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Uh, Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. Um, we just passed the 300 mark and so in terms of the number of, that I've done. And if you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu. This show depends upon the support of appreciative listeners, so if you'd like to support it financially there's a donate button there. So today my guest is Robert Rabin. From what I've learned of Robert so far, reading a bunch of his books or parts of them and getting feedback from various people, I think Robert's going to be a fascinating guest. Rather than me reading a big long bio here, we're going to um, unfold his story bit by bit and you'll get to know him, but um, for pretty much all of his life, um, since the age when I joined the Boy Scouts, he's been interested in spirituality. and. gaining a deeper understanding of of things. That didn't kick in for me until I was about 18. So, Robert, you mentioned that um, you were struck by a strong curiosity about life when you were 11, which propelled you into years of globetrotting adventures. Did something specific happen when you were 11?
1: First, uh, Rick, thanks for inviting me onto the show. Sure. Good to be here.
0: Yes, something
1: specific happened at 11. My family and I were living in Italy at the time. And we had gone skiing in, uh, on the Matterhorn, I was showing off, as Leo Rising tends to do, and fell down and broke my leg, mm-hmm. and in those days, which was about 1961, I think, they put me in a cast from hip to ankle, and I had to be in bed for a month. Couldn't go to school, couldn't walk, couldn't get around. So, while my siblings were off to school, and my parents were out, and my dad was off working, I got the Encyclopedia Britannica, all maybe, I don't know, 25 books or whatever it was, put them on my bed, and for an entire month, every day, I would go through each of the separate books. Now, I wouldn't, obviously, read everything, but I did turn every page and read some of the things that I was interested in, and somewhere in that process, I looked up in my bedroom and everything just started to open and expand. This is the story I tell, but I don't actually remember if this happened. But since I started telling the stories, if it did, it probably did. But there was a light or a a sort of a light, a spirit, an energy that came into the room when it opened. And that was just enough to make me realize that things weren't quite the way they seemed. So I don't call that awakening. I don't use that word. I use the word opening and expansion, which is words I continue to use. And so that was the thing that that made me wait. There's more to life than I'm hearing about. When I asked my siblings last week for more clues about my youth, in case we got there in this interview, because <laughs> I don't I don't remember. My sister Gina says that I was. I questioned everything and never accepted standard answers and drove everybody crazy. My mother says the first word anyone ever heard me say was why. So I think somewhere in all of that, I had this questioning disposition, a curiosity, an opening into a kind of realization that there's a lot more going on, I'm not hearing about and for whatever reason. I remember going, I need to go in that direction. Hmm. I need to find out about what opened in front of me. It seemed like the most
0: important thing to do. And so
1: really, ever since then, I've been headed in that direction.
0: That's great. Did that make you a better student? I mean, were you always the one to raise your hand and ask questions? I don't really remember. I wasn't a great student, but
1: in my own defense here, (laughs) I wasn't interested in what they taught. When we went back to the states from Italy and we were in high school, I shared a bedroom with my older brother and I remember getting stacks and stacks of Western philosophical books, which were pretty much what was available at the time and I would read those under my covers with the flashlight Descartes who who I can't remember who they were, but the Western philosophers to kind of keep that inquiry alive, school wasn't m- of interest to me. I was an average student, I was very active though in sports, student government, after school activities and clubs and in fact they almost didn't let me graduate from high school because I was a little bit of a political rabble rouser. But they, I think they let... I think they graduated me because it was, it was like, let's get this guy out of here. Yeah so wasn't an, and when i got to college the mediocrity of my student abilities plummeted and and i became i didn't even go to class anymore i thought going to college was like you register you get accepted and then that's the end that's all you do i didn't
0: really even know you're
1: supposed to go to class and study so
0: <laughs> you and i have some some things in common. We're about the same age. We both broke a bone skiing. For me, it was the collarbone. I was going down a trail that had been closed, and I went jumping off a thing and landed headfirst. I think you used to be a drummer, right? I was a drumming student in high school. Actually, I wasn't bad, and I
1: really liked it. One of the highlights of that time was my drum teacher New Buddy Rich. Oh, cool you know, a great jazz drummer, and we went to see him at Disneyland with his band, and he introduced me to Buddy. Wow. Or, actually, Mr. Rich. <laughs> we got really close to watch him play, and that guy's left hand on his, it's, uh, you know, all right. After seeing that, I really couldn't ever call myself a drummer <laughs> of any kind. But I played for a couple of years, and I—I I, I, to this day, I continue to love rhythm. Anytime yeah. I hear a conga drum or some percussion instruments or trans drumming, I'm just right there with it. It's fantastic.
0: Yeah, me too. One thing that we don't have in common is that you really got a lot clearer than I did a lot younger. Reading Descartes under the the sheets when you were 11, 12 years old is very impressive. And so it seems like that once lit, that flame stayed burning and uh, just kept burning. And then, as I recall from reading about you and, and as you began to, just began to say, when you got into college, you're not much into classes, and you're out in the woods dropping acid and doing whatever you were doing, just sort of <laughs> looking for kind of a, a, an experiential dimension that, uh, yeah. that academics wasn't providing.
1: It, it was always experience that I was looking for. I think I went to three or four colleges, a number of them, and uh, I was studying comparative religion and philosophy and stuff, but, but uh, the teachers were academics, and we were learning a subject. So, that wasn't what I wanted, I wanted some experience that would give me some answers or clarity to these questions that had emerged in that original opening. You know, the classic ones, who am I, what's real, where do I belong, all of that, which yeah in the rearview mirror sounds like a big you know movie cliche but you know when it's happening it's quite real so i was looking for experience then in one of the colleges i had a philosophy professor with whom i started an organic garden on the college property we'd gotten permission to do that this is maybe late 60s or something 1970 after we built this garden the students and he and i would we would gather in the afternoon and this was the first really experiential academic sanction thing that happened. He used to give a psilocybin. Really. Yeah. And that was one day. I was in this garden looking up, and the sky opened, and and all of these autumn leaves came down, and it, it was among the first hallucinatory experiences that were that were still very rich and compelling. So I. Do want to credit him with that and thank that school for providing the stage for dropping some psilocybin acid? But mostly, I was studying aikido in the north. I lived in the north of California.
0: Yeah, you were going to Humboldt State, right? I was going to Humboldt State. Right, that's exactly right. I actually did a course there uh, oh, okay. with, with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. It was it was not an academic course. We we used it in the summertime, and there was a funny story where we spent a whole month just meditating our brains out. I got picked up by somebody. We somehow got credit for doing that. Some professor arranged for giving us credit, and it was through the auspices of a course in watershed management. So I actually have credits in watershed management for meditating 10 hours a day. And this guy picked me up and I told him we were doing that. And he got so angry. He said, you know, if you mismanage a watershed, it's such a terrible thing. <laughs> so, so I said, don't well, worry, I'm not going to be managing any. I'm just just getting well, these credits. <laughs> one can only
1: imagine that it's a terrible thing. That's good news, Rick, because in case this whole interview thing doesn't work, you can fall back. On watershed management. Yeah. On watershed management. That's a comfort to you. So I lived up there and, and that was... Very formative. I I started studying Zen and Zazen. I had an Aikido teacher. I was living up in the woods in a little cabin reading Castaneda, haiku, whatever I could get my hands on. Because as you know, back in the late 60s, it wasn't like today. There was hardly anything available of a, let's say, Yogananda,
0: Castaneda, a few things. Yogananda,
1: Castaneda, some old translations of Kundalini texts. And then because of that, I ended up going to Europe, I dropped out of school finally and went to Europe for a couple of years, and began meeting people who had come back from India telling all these tales, and then uh, I decided that's where I wanted to go, and so in, maybe it was 1972, I headed with a friend overland from Europe through Turkey and Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, that route to India and got there in 1973.
0: And you went on actual buses and trains and stuff, right? Buses and train. I did an interview with this guy named Radhanath Swami, who's the head of the kind of leaders in the Hare Krishna movement, and mm. he actually did it by hitchhiking. It was amazing. He has an amazing book called The Journey Home, if you ever feel like reading an amazing book where he pretty much almost dies on every page because of adventures he's having going overland to, to India. In fact, when he he got to the Indian border, they said, we don't want you here, go home. And he didn't have any money or anything else. And there's a whole story about how he managed to get himself in. Well,
1: I don't think we hitchhiked, but we we took a few buses. I remember going over the Khyber Pass Mm. on a luggage rack of a truck. You're sitting up top. Yeah, Yeah, we're sitting up top. And I remember in eastern Turkey on a train, I was out in the corridor And a a, a drunken soldier stumbled into me, started yelling at me in Turkish, pulled his bayonet and held it against my throat. (laughs) So I did, you know, even though I didn't hitchhike, I I feel like I could pretty well match story for story. You can't go to that part
0: of the world, you know, and not have adventure stories. It's pretty wild living. Well, maybe sometime we'll have an overland to India smackdown between you and Radhanath Swami. Well, i just as soon not relive those days. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was then, this is now. So you got to India and you were going to go up to yeah. Bhutan to go mountain hiking or something like that?
1: The original idea between me and three friends was to go to Bhutan on a mountaineering expedition. We wanted to sneak into Bhutan, which you couldn't get to at that time. So our this gives you an idea of how smart we were! We were going to sneak over the Himalayas, <laughs> you know, as if it's sort of a trail in the park. Right. Get to Bhutan, and then our collective dream was to track and find snow leopards uh-huh. and just live amongst the snow leopards. We were under the influence of Han Shan, which was an ancient Chinese mystical poet. Who so you know, we just had this fantasy going. Uh, Eric and I traveled overland. And the other two flew from France to Delhi, where we met up. But they couldn't handle India. They'd been there for about a week before we got there. They'd already made plans to come back to the States. They just they couldn't handle it. So as soon as we got there, after about a four-month overland trek, Michael and Carol left, and Eric and I were like, okay, now what? We couldn't do it on our own. So we went up to Nainital, uh, which is the the ashram of Nimkuruli Baba, we stayed there. for. He had just died and they were doing the ceremonies and so on, but we met Ramdas and hung out a bit. Ram Dass kept telling me I should go to see Muktananda's ashram. That was, that was the second time I had heard of Muktananda in Turkey. We met a fellow who was going back to the ashram and we, he traveled with us all the way to Delhi. And then he said, if you're ever down in Bombay, come and see me. So, but I said, okay, never mind. And then we went to N- 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 90 tall, we left, got to Delhi. I went down to Madras and ended up in a 30-day Vipassana retreat with Guenka, who was one of the founders of it. After that, I went over to Puttaparthi, where... Sai Baba, Sai Baba and got very, very sick. And then I got arrested and put in jail and kicked out of the state by the police.
0: What did you get arrested for? There
1: was a group of people who had been stealing jewelry and money from the wealthy Western devotees that were coming to Putaparthi and lived in a certain area. And because I lived where these suspected thieves lived, in a little row of bungalows, they thought I was one of the thieves. And they just came in one night with these dogs and arrested me and put me in prison. They said, okay, you can go, but you have to leave the state. So I went over to Goa, which is a little Portuguese colony on the coast, south of Bombay, where I was still healing from my illness, spent about a month there met some people who would come from the north where they harvest. Would you have dysentery or something? No, I had a staph infection. All my skin surface, except for my face, was just open, oozing sores. Eesh. So I, could, I couldn't wear anything. And So when I finally got to go, I would just go into the water, the ocean, let the salt water do it, and then come back and bake in the sun.
0: Yeah.
1: So that finally healed. And then I went, well, I'm close enough to Bombay. I think I'll go meet Ervik my friend from Turkey, who said, if you ever get to Bombay, come and see me. So, I went to the ashram, he wasn't there, he was actually sick in the hospital in Bombay, they said he'd be back in a day or two. Baba uh, Muktananda, we called him Baba, was up in the north on a trip, so I, I thought, well, I'll wait for a couple of days. Hervé came back, my friend's friend, we spent a, a few days. And then I said, I need to go to Benares to reconnect with Eric, who's waiting for me. And Ervega got, he was like, No, 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 you've got to wait, you know, meet my Baba. You know, he's going to be back soon. And I said, You know, look, I'm not really into your Baba, with all due respect. I, I had gone to India content with a Zen orientation. And I, like, I'm a Zen guy. Putaparthi was a terrible experience. The Gwenka thing I didn't care for. It was like, I don't want to meet your Baba. I got to go." He goes, no, 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 you got to meet the Baba, you know, my Baba. Fine. When is the Baba coming? Two days. Okay. So I stay and then the Baba comes and as you, you know, when the Guru comes home, they have a big ceremony and elephants and conch shells and trumpets and and he came in. I met him. I stayed another day and then nothing happened and I went to everybody and I said, look, I met your Baba. I got to go. And he was a little disappointed. He wanted something to happen, so I said, "Okay, but you you have to go and ask permission to leave the ashram." Which you know, I'm 23, maybe, wasn't used to asking permission to do anything. I had a huge bowling ball of hashish in my backpack that I brought up from Goa. I was like, you know, ask permission. He said, "Well, it's it's a formality. It's it's a custom. You know, you've been here for a week. You've accepted his hospitality." So in the courtyard of the ashram, which is... I, I
0: is, find, just to interject, I find it interesting sure. that you were still into hashish, even though you considered yourself a serious Zen student. It seemed, those seem incompatible to me.
1: Oh, they seemed compatible to me. But <laughs> maybe, maybe I wasn't as serious a Zen student as I thought. Don't forget, Rick, I'm the guy who was going to sneak into Bhutan oh, that's right, and, yeah. and go live with snow leopards, so
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not <laughs> yes. Yeah. The neurons are still working out their arrangement. uh, That's right,
1: that's right, we don't want to take anything too seriously. So anyway,
0: (laughs) so Baba was
1: sitting on the porch in his courtyard, It's a big open space, he'd sit on his porch, marble porch, and and, uh, watch what was happening in the ashram, and so I went up to him, my bag was packed, and there was a bus leaving in about 20 minutes, so I went up and said, Baba, thank you very much, I've been here about a week, I appreciate it, but I'd like your permission to leave, you know, I've got to go. So through the translator, he says, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to go meet a friend in Benares. Now, this is a broad daylight about noon. And he looks at me and he he says, you know, it's cold in Benares, at which time I could have said any number of things, right?
0: Yeah.
1: I got a coat or whatever. I got a coat. Thank you. Don't worry about it. I just want to get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Well, I've told this story a lot. I know this story is true, because I can still feel it living out in me as I'm telling it. It's cold in Benares, is what he said. I went into my version of the 18 minutes of missing tape from the Nixon tapes. Right, right. The next thing I was consciously aware of, I was 30 yards away on the other side of this enormous courtyard, seeing Hervé's face, I'm just laughing hysterically, and hearing someone say, I guess I'm not going to Benares, <laughs> and that the speaker turned out to be me. I, I did try
0: to get away again about another week after I got Shaktipat. So, first of all, he, might have, he, could easily just have, he could just as easily have said the moon is made of green cheese and it probably would have had the same effect. His, his words were a conduit for Shaktipat, basically, right?
1: I wouldn't say Shaktipat then, because a few days later, I got Shaktipat, and that's a pretty
0: unmistakable event. All I'm doing is reporting what I can remember yeah. happening. Well, somehow or, um, or other, his presence or something shifted you big time there, did something to you. Yes, it sort of <laughs> scrambled my hard drive
1: <laughs> right. for a while. But the Shaktipat came a few days later, after an evening chant and I was supposed to go off and wash some dishes after dinner. And I started feeling like I was coming on to acid, mm-hmm. very disoriented, lightheaded. And I told the work supervisor I had to go lie down. So I This went... is
0: before or after the Shaktipat?
1: This is just before the Shaktipat, a few days after I, right. I decided, decided to, stay. to stay. So I went up to the dorm, which is where the men slept. We had just mats on the floor. There was about 60 of us. Mm-hmm. And I laid down on my mat and that was it. Until late the next morning, when my eyes opened, and I couldn't move any part of my body because it felt like it had been crushed by trucks. There was a glass of water next to me on the floor,
0: next to my mat, and a while later... Crushed by trucks means you were in pain? Just paralyzed, sort of. I I was less aching,
1: not pain, aching, but I just couldn't move. Hmm. I was stunned inside and out. Someone came and said that I had been roaring like a lion all night, so loud I kept that part of the ashram awake. I didn't hear anything. And anywhere.
0: this is still pre-Shaktipat? This is Shaktipat. Well, I mean, as I understood, Shaktipat with Muktananda, he would brush you with some peacock feathers or something and that would, the Shakti would be transmitted that way.
1: That was the formal style that would happen later in intensives. I see. The ashram in Ganeshpuri and the environment around Baba, from my experience, was, was so shakti-rich that you would...
0: Just by being were, there you got shakti it was,
1: Which was why I stayed for 10 years, because right. it was such a force. So mm-hmm. this just occurred. So they said, look, you've got shakti. But now, at that time we didn't have books, pamphlets, or we, it, it was the Wild West. The only thing we got when we got to the ashram was a little booklet called Ashram Dharma, mm-hmm. which was how to behave in the ashram. And basically you had to attend every scheduled event, chanting, meditation, work, whatever it was. And it was regulated from 3.30 until 10 at night, 3.30 in the morning to 10 at night. That was the one absolute rule. You attend everything. If you can't, you have to leave. So that was just a little context for the discipline of over 10 years, everything which you probably experienced some of yourself. So anyway, I couldn't move that day, I laid in bed, slept the following night, and then on the second day I was so freaked out, I had no context for what had happened, that I packed my bag and snuck out of the ashram and went to Bombay and said, so I am I am so out of here. And I got to some room in a, you know, 10 rupee a night flophouse or something, and that night I had one of those super vivid dreams. I was back in the ashram, in the, the what's called the Nityananda temple, where Baba would give talks in the evening. In the dream I was there, Baba was looking at me from his chair, speaking in English to me, saying, If you stay with me, I'll take you flying to places you've never imagined. And with that, he got off the chair, took me by the hand, and sort of like Rocky and Bullwinkle, we, we leapt up and the rest of the dream we were just flying through the universe together. So, you know, the next day I went, I went back to the ashram.
0: Just out of curiosity. Um, and that was that. Yeah, just out of curiosity. I've, I've had some experiences like that too, and I know other people who have. Do you feel like Muktananda, as a person, was kind of consciously doing something, okay, this Robert fellow left and he went to Bombay, I'm going to go visit him in his dream and give him this experience. Or do you think that Muktananda as a person was completely unaware that you were having any such experience and it was sort of like the Absolute was just, or Divine Consciousness or something was just giving you that experience because it was trying to guide your life and your life at that point was, you know Muktananda at that point was a very important element in your life. In other words, do Masters actually consciously do these things, or is it just the Divine Intelligence that does these things and Masters are just sort of visual representations that we can relate to, that the Divine Intelligence shows us in order to make the experience meaningful? If and when
1: I become a Master, and if and when I ever get to talk to the Absolute Consciousness... Then you'll be be able to tell me, right? Rick, I promise I will ask that question.
0: But my, unfortunately, I'm sorry to disappoint everyone. Okay. I, I don't have any idea at all. Okay, I was curious. That came up the other day, that very point, somebody emailed me some similar question. And uh, I remembered a story that Marji once told where when he was around his master, whom we'll just call Gurudev for short here, he often heard stories of people who would pray to Gurudev and then receive yeah. very specific results. And yeah. Marji asked Gurudev how that worked. And Gurudev just said, it's the Department of the Absolute and He takes care of it. As if to say, it's not something I'm doing consciously, the Absolute yeah. does it. But I find it so interesting that the Absolute or Divine Intelligence or whatever we want to call it, orchestrates these things with such rich, vivid content to them. You know, people, Ramana Maharshi shows up for people and talks yeah. to them and all kinds yeah. of things like that. It, it kind of makes you wonder about how creation actually works. I've asked
1: that question of myself for 50 years. Mm-hmm. How does reality actually work? I don't know, but I've developed a metaphor which satisfies me in the sense of it represents my experience, which is this. Existence is like a cosmic Disneyland with virtually unlimited rides. Non-duality, which you talk a lot about in my worldview, non-duality as a philosophy set of experiences, but that's a ride. Mm-hmm. What happened in the years of moved to Nanda for me—that's a
0: ride. So maybe Bhakti is a ride. And everything is a ride is for a ride. me yeah. because
1: the preeminent holder or container of existence—if you can even say that—what you might, what you refer to as the absolute—I don't use that word. I just call it existence.
0: Yeah, it's. We could use any of those words. Yeah.
1: It, 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 There we could, they're important to me to make linguistic distinctions because we can talk about that later. So for me, existence is this place in which anything that occurs has a legitimate place in existence. I don't need to know more about it other than to go, oh, this was a really interesting, mysterious ride. When I was once, fast-forward many, many years, I was on Stinson Beach, which is a a private beach up north of San Francisco. And I was walking along the beach, pretty empty, and Bhagwan Nityananda, who was Muktananda's guru who died in 1961, suddenly appeared in his loincloth in front of me on the beach. There's a picture of him on the wall up behind you there. there. There is. And
0: walked toward me, said something, hit me on the head and then disappeared. Wow. Now, was he as concrete as an ordinary person, or was he diaphanous or something? Probably not as concrete, but it was enough, it was physical
1: and concrete enough to know that I wasn't hallucinating, or maybe I was, but it was as if a person had come up to me and said something. Because I've had over the years, as most people have had, so many unexplainable, mysterious, yet..." often transformative experiences, I decided that I would just live open enough to accept and appreciate and be open to being affected by what happens without needing to know why, how, or put it into a story, a narrative.
0: My orientation is I don't expect to arrive at any ultimate answers, but it's it's fun to ponder and contemplate this stuff. To speculate, you know, just it's interesting, and it's more than just sort of idle entertainment because I, I sort of think if you keep at it, you, you do gain a, a deeper, more nuanced appreciation of the mechanics of creation in some intuitive way, if nothing else. I like that article you wrote about not being certain about anything though, and I think it was that one in which you quoted Kurt Vonnegut, he said, I don't know about you, but I practice a disorganized religion, (laughs) I belong to an unholy disorder, we call ourselves Our Lady of Perpetual Astonishment.
1: (laughs) Thank you for noticing that. You can't really belong to that church because, you know, I've never found any services or priests or anywhere. I think Kurt took it with him when he died. But I like to say, whenever people ask for an affiliation, am I part of this community or that or whatever? No, no, I'm part of Kurt's church, Our Lady of Perpetual Astonishment, because I can't think of anything that one could articulate that is as precise and yet as open as that. I am perpetually astonished by the dream I had many years ago, by Nishinanda appearing, Irene's email to me, would you like to speak with Rick? The fact that I'm alive four years after a group of doctors said there's nothing we can do, you're going to die very soon. Mm. That's my hobby, just to refer back to what you said a moment ago. My hobby, rather than to speculate on things, is to deepen my capacity to be astonished at what happens. And in the astonishment and the appreciation, there are things that seep in, in terms of how, but it's so pre-verbal that I never try to articulate it because I ruin it, and I have to learn how to understand things in a pre-verbal manner, which means I know how it works, I'm afraid I can't really say more about it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Among the articles you wrote that I read, I, I really liked the science ones a lot. Because for me, even though I have no scientific background, reading a layman's version of scientific stuff amplifies my astonishment. For instance, in this same article you said, uh, did you know that in four square centimeters of skin there are approximately three meters of nerve fibers, 1,300 nerve cells, 100 sweat glands, three million cells, and three meters of blood vessels? Um, Did you know that except for your brain cells, 50 million of the cells in your body will have died and been replaced with others, all while you have been reading this sentence? I don't know if you have your facts straight or not, but if you presuming you do, that kind of stuff boggles the mind and it, it makes yes. it, it makes you amazed at the vastness of the intelligence that seems to be yeah. orchestrating creation.
1: Thank you for picking on those articles. One reason I write is so I don't have to keep anything in my mind, so I can just go <laughs> off. You know, I just those aren't my facts. I did a lot of research. When I do science-y kinds of things, or when I use exhaustively, as exhaustively I can, because part of the work I've done professionally for 10 years primarily has been as an authentic Mm self-expression teacher and coach. So I work a lot with language, self-expression, communication, and all that. And one of the elements of that is to be sure when you're using facts or statistics, that they're accurate well I'm gonna steal capability. a bunch
0: of your facts for some talk I'm developing huh?
1: so I those were researched quite a lot I'm not a science myself I like you I, I love the way you spoke about it. that deepens my astonishment when I go from oh I'm not this body I'm not the body mind I'm like well hang on you know okay okay been there done that got the tissue but let's come and give a little love to the body yeah I like Before, that article. You know, before we're so willing to throw it away and not be it, I would be thrilled if all I was was the body, because when you look at it in the way that you did, there's no end to the astonishment and the miracle of what this body is, at any level of it, all the way down to the quantum level.
0: I interviewed a guy recently named Michael Dowd, and one of his favorite lines is that evidence is my scripture. That's nice. He has a very religious background considering things like you're just discussing it evokes a, a sort of reverence and, uh, yes. and again the word astonishment because if you actually don't just gloss over it and take it for granted but actually consider what's going on here in your fingertip or in, in anything it, it's so amazing and and so obviously not just some arbitrary capricious random accidental thing but just su- such an incredibly complex sophisticated well-orchestrated phenomenon, that it just uh, makes you wonder, whoa, what is, it's, what is behind that? I mean, how is that happening?
1: Where I get jolted into an intoxication of the divine, a word I don't use, but the sacred, mm-hmm. these days it isn't Rumi and Hafiz and it isn't an old Zen story, it's watching Discovery Channel. Yeah, me too, <laughs> man. Or, I got a year or so ago DVD set of, been produced a couple of years ago, I think either in Sweden or by the BBC. And anyway, it was using microscopic cameras. It was actually a, a photographic, real-time, visual record of pregnancy. All the stages the sperm, of gestation. All the stages from the sperm and the egg coming together and over time, and you can see that if someone can then say in a very dismissive manner, "I'm not the body," I'm <laughs> like, "Well, dude, you, okay, good for you, but you, you don't really know what it is."
0: Yeah, my a, my answer to that is is of course you're the body. You're not just only you're, you're just not only the body. Fine, it's like a wave saying, "I am not a wave. You, you are a wave. You you just also happen to be the ocean."
1: You know, I do remember part of my searching in the old days was a kind of who am I, where do I belong, a, a, a question of identity, I suppose, and belonging. I never, even in 10 years of Muktananda, you know, living in a, a hardcore old-fashioned ashram, studying Vedanta, Kashmir, shaivas and so for whatever reason, I never personally developed antipathy toward my body or my mind, I never rejected it, but whenever I would have an experience of light or bliss or transcendence or whatever, instead of having that cancel out my body, mind, and the world, it just made me open and expand my body, mind, and world to include that. So it was always, Mm. we'll start here and we'll just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to where everything that is or could be is me. So, over the years, it became, there's not even a distinction between me, the person, and me, the transcendent self, and no me existing in infinite absolute consciousness, because really, those categories and distinctions do live in the mind. And because I had never pit one thing against another, I began to include all of those distinctions as a placeholder for me. You can call me the body, and I'll go, thank you for that honor. You could say I'm absolute consciousness, and I go, thank you, that's as much me as the body. You could, as some people, go, you're a fucking asshole, and I go, bless you, my son, that's... I can't disagree, you know, (laughs) you're right on that account. So it's just to where you live in not duality or non-duality, in in my view, or even tri-duality, which is better still, but my experience is you end up living in perpetual astonishment. And all that happens is you get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah.
0: Isn't this somewhat related to Kashmir Shaivism, as, which is, was Muktananda's kind of foundation? Uh, as I understand it, Kashmir Shaivism tends to be much more inclusive than strict Vedanta and doesn't just summarily dismiss the world as an illusion, but kind of takes into account the sort of the the shakti, the miracle of creation, as much as the the Shiva nature, the silent aspect?
1: If you had asked me that 30 years ago, I could have given you a pretty persuasive commentary because I had studied both those systems. I I would say in terms of Kashmir Shaivism, call Sally, because she is that. I don't remember squat, except to say this a distinction that I remember making many years ago between Vedanta and Shaivism was their approach, that Vedanta was not this, not this, and Kashmir Shaivism was this and this and this. Right. In the end, you get to the same place just by a different methodology. I always preferred the this and this and this rather than not this, because the this and this and this gives you wood-fired pizzas, for example. It you know gives you the Ramblas in Barcelona, the walking street in the evening, you can do this, this. If you're a Vedantin, you know, you kind of go, no, not that, not that, it doesn't seem like it's
0: as much fun, but I'm not a scholar in either of those areas. So let's get back to your story. So you went to Bombay, you had this dream of Muktananda coming to you, and yes. pr- presumably then you went back to Ganeshpuri after that.
1: I did, that the very next day. and. Uh, I stayed, that was in maybe the fall of 1973, and I stayed until January of 1985. Muktananda died in October of 82, but by then I I was an executive of the Foundation, the organization that was created. So I wanted to stay and help the successors and the transitions, so I stayed with them for a couple of years.
0: Yeah. Now there then, was some story you related in your, one of your books where you had been working in a kitchen or something, and you came out from the kitchen and you sat down on a bench, and then you had this profound transformative experience, and things were never the same since. Would this be a good time to throw in that story?
1: Yes. The, any time that you have a story about my past, that's a good time, because I can't remember that. Okay, if I that's remember why, it, good. <laughs> that's why when I sent you the reading list, and yeah. the viewers, when you get selected to be a guest, uh, Rick and Irene asked to send some materials to give him some background. So I did, and in the, the introductory paragraph to my material list, I said, Rick, that these are really self-serving, because I think... These things I'm asking you to read do represent the arc of my journey and certain milestones, but I won't remember them (laughs) unless... So if you could be kind enough to bring these up, I can talk about it. So thank you.
0: Yes. Well, incidentally, while I'm preparing for these interviews, most of the time I'm... I'm listening to audio, mostly I'm riding my bike or cutting the grass or something. In your case, I was actually <clears throat> reading your books in the evenings, but I, I really have a hard time writing down questions these days. I just feel like I just want to get to know this guy that's, and I'm going to read okay. his book and then I'll see what I happen to remember during the interview and that probably be see, more important than anything I write down. That's exactly.
1: So I do remember that experience. I sat down on the concrete surrounding of a big tree and everything changed into light. And so there was a little bit of an outline of the trees in the building, whatever physically was in front of me, there was was still a vague outline, but everything was just pouring light out of it. I don't know if my mind got totally still or disappeared, there wasn't a sound anywhere. The only sensation was just light from everywhere, and I was gone. There was just someone, something was aware of light everywhere for a long time. And then things slowly came back into form. But I was quite stunned by that. Couldn't speak for a while. When I wrote the narrative to the experience that sounds like I said I was changed forever, that was like, I think, my first book reflecting on one of the early experiences. The thing about Muktananda's ashram, which is very different from how people seem to be studying these days, is the environment was so thick with Shakti and the discipline was so rigorous that those kinds of experiences would happen to almost everyone every other day. When Irene invited me to your show, I I wanted to see about your interviewing style and what your themes were, so I watched quite a number of your interviews, partially. get an idea and and said, oh, he's got a lot of the non-dual people, which is, I had a sudden shift in consciousness that is irrevocable and permanent, and I am now established in the absolute truth of pure consciousness or awareness being aware of itself. Are you saying that that's what the non-dual people say? I'm not, I'm not making fun or being disparaging, I'm just No, saying, that's what you're saying, right? In a general sense, yeah. that
0: represents a certain sort of philosophical or spiritual outlook and experience base. It sort of does, except I'm, I don't think that actually happens to too many people. Um, oh, no, no, but hang yeah.
1: on, just to make the point, I'm not saying this is your, this is just what I heard people say a lot. I'm yeah. not discrediting it, I'm just saying, right. this is what I heard. But in the ashram, because of how it was structured... Those would happen on a regular basis. The thing is, we we couldn't then go out to teach. We'd have to go back to work, sweeping the path or chanting over years. So there was a kind of grounding that would take the experience. We'd initially language as absolute and I'm one with Brahman and so on and go, okay, but there's another there's another way in which this is going to occur to you if you are willing to go beyond it. When I had left the ashram 1985 my mother gave me a stack of letters that I had written from the early 70s to her from the ashram <laughs> like, Dear mother your son is no longer he has merged with Brahman, the absolute. I will never see you again. I have never seen you in the beginning. There is nothing. My poor mother. Oh, God. My poor mother. My poor Jewish mother, who raised me and my siblings, you know, has lost a son. Oh, thank God, my older brother became an attorney. She could, she could at least endure one, one casualty. And I would, I read this letter after letter. That was, you know, like, 73 to maybe 77, the, the first half of my stay, because that was the uh, the idiom, the, the dialect I learned to represent experience, because we were studying all that. And the experiences were so overwhelming and so enormous that you, you your languaging would be, this is real, this is permanent, there can't be anything more than this. Nothing but pure bliss and pure light no self, utter delight everywhere. This, I have become Brahman. In fact, there was a guy who started saying that pretty loudly, an American guy in the ashram in India. No, it would happen. So Baba caught wind of it, and uh, he sent him back to New York, and he said, I want you to go back to New York and drive a taxi for a while, mm-hmm. and then I'll send word when you can come back. And so he's like, I am absolutely established in Brahman. But then when he got to New York and started driving a cab, apparently Brahman didn't make the trip with him. <laughs> so I'm not making fun what I'm saying is. No, that's good. The discipline we had mm-hmm. and the way we were always made to keep the what's called the transcendent and the practical or the relative, they were so joined that they could never become separate. A quick example. Just Um, want to
0: throw in something here. You you probably you probably heard Ram expression that if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your parents. Well, Um, but but um, also along the same lines, I I think what you're highlighting here is the value of a disciplined spiritual practice and structure and, and also the, the, the value of a guru because in in this day and age, a lot of people are dissing gurus and, and saying that the, guru, the age of the guru is finished and there's no point in gurus and we can all be our own guru and this and that. And there's all kinds of people who have awakenings of various degrees and run out and start teaching very often prematurely, in my opinion, and often get themselves in trouble. So I think you're bringing up some important points here. Thank you. I learned more about the nature of my
1: own mind from cutting carrots under the eye of someone who says, you have a whole mound of carrots and you're supposed to cut them at a certain angle and a certain thickness. You get the knife, you're taught how to stand, you do one or two, this is what I want. And she's then the supervisor is watching you and the others, okay, I make one cut, Great, I've done this, and I've got like 500 carats to do. And then every time I miss the thickness or the angle that's wanted, I would get hit in the head with a potato or, you know, a pan or someone would scream. And she'd go, what's wrong? You have a knife? I told you what to do. You did it once. Why can't you do it? Over and over and over. Well, there's only one answer, isn't there? You're not paying attention. And if you're not paying attention, where are you? you're in your thought stream. So that was the way, that was part of the discipline as well as hours of meditation, study, chanting, and so on. Years later, when I had become a manager of that facility you were mentioning in Fallsburg, which was, oh, we'd have like 3,000 people in it residentially, 30 departments. I was the manager of that. And one day I went into Baba's room to review a budget for a project that had been a couple hundred thousand dollars or something, and answered all of his questions, which was great. I passed muster. So then I started to leave, and just as I was leaving his room, he said, well, hang on a second. We were, as you know, Rick, we were, what, two hours north of New York City. Mm -hmm. We'd have drivers that would go down to the city to buy things there that we couldn't get locally. And this is, again, maybe mid to late 70s. So we would give them, I think it was $10 out of petty cash for lunch and bridge tolls and so on. So I just cleared every hurdle of a budget, let's say $300,000. And as I'm about to leave, he goes, wait a sec, David was the name of our driver. Didn't David go to the city the other day? Yes. Do we give them some money for lunch and gas? Yes, we give them $10. And he goes, what happens if there's money left over? goes back into petty cash. You know the size of this facility. It's 100 acres, 3,000 people, $300,000 budget, no problem. Now we're talking about what's left over from $10, (laughs) which may have been 50 cents. He says, so how much did David bring back the other day for petty cash? Dude, I'm managing a small city. I handled 300 grand. Everyone, everything is going well. 30 departments, everything. I didn't get to notice where the fucking 50 cents went to?" I didn't say that. All right you know. So then he does this thing. He goes, "You don't know what happened to that money." I go, "No, but I'll find out." He goes, eh. he goes "Is that your money?" And I'm like, "No, Baba, it's here. Now we're playing this game that was always played over the years. No, Bob, it's your money. He goes, well, aren't you the manager? Yes, Bob, I'm the manager. Isn't part of your job to take care of my money for me? I'm like, yes. I'm like, you know, I I can't get out of this. Like, oh, okay, we'll just play this out until he gets tired. And he was the one who made me manager, by the way. He gave me that job. Then at the end of this little ordeal, he says, is managing too much for you? Should I get another manager? Is it too hard for you? And I'm like, no, well, he goes... Well, you should try to do a better job. I'm like, I absolutely will. Thank you. I'll... So, you're in this Shakti rich environment in which you're experiencing random sudden shifts and expansions and elevations, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, as I like to say. And you're chanting and meditating, and that's the focus and the inner self. At the same time, at the same time, without any division or separation or hierarchy, Where's the 50 cents? Mm
0: -hmm. So that's how I learned. That's how I grew up. This seems to be kind of standard routine for for gurus in my experience. I mean, Marshi was the same way, Amma is the same way. You know, you're in this environment in which there's a tendency to just get unbounded and vast, and, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, who cares about the details? And at the same time, they're on your case to, to be. Precise and yes. focused, and every little thing has to be just right. And I would often wonder, especially with Maharishi, because I had a lot more personal direct experience around him, how could he care about this stuff? You know, he's fussing over these little tiny, teeny weeny things, and you know, there, and there's such a bigger picture. But it, it's it's almost like you, enlightenment itself is characterized by, unboundedness along with the ability to focus attention sharply. And so there's a a kind of a discipline taking place in which that capability is being cultured.
1: I can only say how I experience things. There isn't a difference. There there never is a difference between why do they care about that, because that detail is not different from the majestic transcendental experience at a certain point in sadhana. Mm. It, It is in the beginning. And unfortunately, a lot of teachers don't get past that, so they keep subtly reinforcing this. And you can see a spiritual dialect being created. You know, well, I'm not really the body or from a relative standpoint, and so on and so forth. But there's a, there's a place one gets to, and I'm speaking from experience, where awareness being aware of itself fades into awareness, being aware of something, what what you're doing, being aware of what's happening around you, as not being different, because anyone who says they're not a person, the world is an illusion, is still eating from the same trough as the people who they say are just people living in a, in a real world. I'm not, but you fly on a plane, you live in a house, you turn on the faucet and expect water, you eat food, you expect the people to pay for your program. So, in other words, my view is if you're sincere about you're not a person, you really don't exist, and the world isn't real, get off the grid. If you're here, then even if that isn't your experience, if let's say you're kind of in the formless, I understand, at least don't disparage the form if there was one person that i've met and i've met a lot that i in my experience I say look you've got the right to say you've gone beyond form it would be moved Monday, nobody else mm-hmm. but here's what he did other than you know be on our case for everything you walk out of the room if you get to turn the fan off you don't get to use the fan all summer kind of thing here's the thing that i i was impressed with at the time and i still am now many years later when he would go on these tours through india america australia people would go in advance of him to prepare, you know, build an ashram, a hall, whatever, work our asses off. And when he would get to a new place, or after an intensive, a big program, for by then thousands of people, when he would begin his concluding talk at the end of a program, he would always start by saying, I want to acknowledge the people who have worked with such love and devotion to make this happen. Mm And then he would name specific names. Mm. I want to thank Radha and her cooks in the kitchen. And then he would talk about what they did. And then he would talk about this. It would sometimes make you cry if he mentioned you, or if he mentioned others whose work you knew. I mean, we're, this is long, hard work, tedious work. These are real de- acts of devotion. Because when he said that, it wasn't a corporate manager acknowledging a subordinate because they learned that in a team building activity. He was speaking from his heart to your heart to acknowledge the beauty of your devotion, of your work, of your effort, of your attention, of your contribution to the whole thing as a person. And I've never forgotten that. Wherever I go, whatever I do, it's among the first things I do. When Jerry uh, Bixman got in touch with me the other day to do a little Video check. Thank you. As soon as we were done, I wrote him an email. I just said, on behalf of all the interviewees and all the visitors to Rick's website, and myself, I want to thank you very much for your part in Rick's wonderful show. It's automatic, but it's it's not unconscious automatic. It's automatic as that's how I see the world,
0: Mm.
1: and I know there's a place where it all disappears and becomes empty light. I know. To me, it's not as much fun as to write someone to thank them or to look someone in the eyes and go, thank you for what you've done. If we abstract our humanity, if we cancel that out, how does the spirituality even show up? I don't know how it does. And because my training, when I came into this with Muktananda, I was never allowed to separate form from formless, physical to transcendent, however you want to name those dualities, they became one. And then it was like you just play in a cosmic Disneyland. And there are some things that I learned to do because they made me happy, which is to acknowledge what people do and who they are. I don't know how I got into that track. No, it's a nice track. But um, there, you, there you go. There is one yeah, of my rants.
0: Yeah, I have my uh, rants too, and sorry. that's that tends to be one of them. In certain niches of the non-dual world or the contemporary spirituality, there is often a, a sort of a emotionless flavor, a sort of a cavalier dismissal of the human and the significance of our feelings and our our, our worth as, as human beings and so on because we're often dismissed as not being human beings you know and and, and uh, uh, all this relative stuff is is illusory and so on uh, if a person sort of grounds themselves in that perspective there you know there can be a, a disinterest in all kinds of things I mean you wrote this book radical sages about your passion in, re- with regard to political situations a lot of spiritual people would couldn't probably can't relate to that because it seems like such an illusory world. But you know, if you if you look at the the great sages, I mean, Ramana Maharshi used to read the newspaper and listen to the radio and carefully follow what was going on in Indian politics back in the day, probably during the time of Gandhi and, and Indian independence. And uh, you know, most of the great spiritual teachers I know about, having read their stories and so on, were attentive to... The details of the lives of their students, as you just described about Muktananda, and and you know we're concerned. They didn't, you know. I mean, I've seen Amma many times, shed tears when someone comes to her and says, "Oh, my husband yeah. beats me, or I have this disease, or, or something." And uh, you know, she, she she doesn't try to tell the person that the husband is illusory or that the disease isn't real. Before radical sages, I was
1: transcendentally oriented. Right. But then I had openings and expansions to include that. But here's, my, here's a point I would just like to make, and then we can move on. Sure. The point is this. Anyone who lives in America, not anyone, sorry, that's not very precise, in general, in this country, especially if I can just focus on the world we're talking about, sort of the, the spirituality world, and the way that we might know it, There is an extraordinary privilege to the lifestyle that is taken for granted. If we are enjoying a privilege in the real world from the labors of real people, and we live in a social and cultural and political climate that even allows us to do what we do, then I think it's at a minimum good manners to at least acknowledge that. We are able to do what we do because of the economic, social, culture and political environment in which we live. And therefore, I think we have some responsibility to participate consciously in the system that allows us to do what we do. That's all I
0: really want to say and, End of rant. <laughs> end of rant. No, and you had a cool thing going during, I, I don't remember which election it was, in which you were trying to get all the people who practice yoga oh. and that sort of thing to get out there and vote because it's a huge voting block and um, you know, could make a huge mm-hmm. difference, and I thought that was pretty cool.
1: Post 9-11, I'd had a series of openings and expansions that brought the world into my body mm-hmm. to, to where uh, I could feel in this body the disturbances in, in the physical world, and so I felt well, i better do something. And I, and I developed a premise that other people, meditators, yogis and so on, cultural creatives, members of the low Haas demographic, you know, I figured there's there's probably enough of these people joined by common philosophy and values, that if they would vote, we could keep Bush out of office the second term, which was the goal. And the premise was that... They would want to do this, they would want to get engaged, they would want to move off the mat into the electoral process. That was my premise. So I launched this project called First Truth for President and Radical Sages. When I started getting hate mail from yoga teachers and meditation teachers and Buddhists for Bush, I realized my premise was faulty. <laughs> I, you know, I said, Robert, <laughs> you can. This is, this is a faulty premise. I mean, I've never really primarily been a, in-quote, spiritual teacher, but I've always done programs and written, and so there's a few people who would follow what I would do. And as soon as I went from silence to political activism, I lost all (laughs) They all went away and said, oh my God, you're totally lost. We believe you when you're talking about silence, but now that you're saying we have to get involved in the electoral process and social issues, you know, Robert, this happens to everybody.
0: Mm. Sooner or later, they fall from the heights into the mud and dirt of the earth. Well, you know, if you want more corn, you got to throw the corn you have in the mud. And- so
1: that whole process was, was uh, very educational and helped to disabuse mm. me of certain unexamined notions I had about the willingness mm. of spiritual people to get involved socially. Because for me, it had happened. It wasn't an issue. It was like, of course we are. We, we are involved. We do participate. It's like Thich Nhat Hanh when he left the monasteries in Vietnam when the bombs were falling. He said, I can stay in the, in, in the monastery and keep doing my practice or I can go out into the world, with, which he, he of course did. And it was, at a certain point, it's not even a choice. The world is you. There's a disturbance in the world. There's a disturbance in you. You do something. And it becomes so apparent to me that I just went, okay, team you know, there's 40 million of us, let's go, and I look back to see if they're following (laughs) and they're like, you know,
0: I fuck you. (laughs) Well, there's an old Bengali saying, which is, if no one comes on your call, then go ahead alone. Which I did. Yeah. I I did, I worked really, really long and hard, and
1: uh, until the election, which didn't go the way I had hoped, and then did it for another couple of years. The only reason I stopped doing radical sages is because I moved to Australia suddenly in 2005 and had a different life there, but... I did. I, I, I don't think I'd ever
0: worked as long and hard on something as I did with them. Well, I want to get to a bunch of other stuff. Uh, sure. So, Sorry. No, it's oh. okay. I'll am I'm oh. i keep you going here. Um, a bunch of people send in questions, and we want to talk about the five principles of authentic living. But you told me that nothing is off limits. Correct. and Unless you decide that it is. So I just wanted to ask... There were these rumors about Muktananda and getting a little bit more interested in the ladies than he should have been given his public persona. How did yeah. you deal with that? What do you make of that? The topic,
1: in general, is one that I don't want to deal with
0: in a kind of hot take fashion. Hot take you meaning just...
1: Yeah, just a quick couple of words, this or that. You know, I can too
0: spend much. 10 minutes on it if you want, just, if you want well, to deal I, with
1: it. I don't, but if you were ever to have a whole call, you know, like do sometimes you have mm-hmm. several people on a panel mm-hmm. to discuss what this would represent as a theme, I would be happy to be there. Okay. I'll just say this. I didn't catch wind of this until the very, maybe the last six months before he died. And then after he died, there was all this transitional stuff, so it it didn't become front and center. And it was a few years later that it became a a very explosive topic. I'll say that I don't know why he did that or, or what it was about. You can read the testimonies of people who say they had been with him. And that will range from it was a blissful experience, to it was really nothing, to it was very traumatic. So I don't deny it happened because I've talked to a few women who say they have been with him. I'll tell you how I dealt with that in my life. Because I would rather be more responsible for my actions than someone else, other than to say it did it. I was disappointed because of the secrecy of it and because some people really hurt. That's my basic response. When I was teaching in about 2003 or somewhere, I was up in the Bay Area at where I lived and I was doing a series of weekly, what I called meditative inquiry classes. People would get together, we'd meditate, I'd give a talk, answer questions. I just started dating a pretty free-spirited woman who, when we were getting to know each other, told me that she and her previous boyfriend had liked to go to sex parties, the orgies that were held sometimes in the south of San Francisco, big warehouse, two, three hundred people get together, and the good news, being you know Jewish, is that there was a buffet because you any place that has a buffet next to the S and M bondage room is like there can't be all that. So she said, would you, you know, would you be willing to go? with me. I like to do them," she said. In my travels, in my youth, I'd experienced a lot, although I'd never experienced being with 300 people having sex. But I told her, I said, look, I will try anything that you want to do once and then give you my report, so I won't say no just because of a previous bias or prejudice. How's that? She goes, great. So, a couple months later, she goes, good news, this Friday orgy in San Francisco, like, the next day, Saturday, I had a class, meditative inquiry class, 25, 30 people would come. So we go to this orgy, and there's easily 300 people in this monster room, every conceivable type of person, age, race, gender, probably a few ETs, doing everything. My friend and I were seated here, kind of looking around. And then all of a sudden, two women come, and they knew my friend, and said hi. They were a lesbian couple. They had just come from Temple, synagogue. And uh, they're talking about that. And then, you know, they strip down and start making love with a strap on. I'm going, well, synagogue, to orgy, here we are, this whole thing's happening. Then I had this massive thought that terrified me, which was, what if someone I know sees me here? wasn't afraid of being there. I told my girlfriend I would. There's nothing wrong with anything, but it was suddenly, what if someone I knew saw me here, especially a student? I couldn't shake that. And I thought, well, it's one thing to disclose and announce things inappropriately, but to be afraid of being found out for something you're actually doing, that's not sustainable, especially if you're living publicly. So the next night, I have my meditative inquiry class, and I had asked my girlfriend if it was okay. I didn't want to expose her. She it fine. So I thought, look, I've got to just say this. I can't be afraid of being found out. So I started out by saying, you know, good evening, welcome. Usually, for those of you who have been coming regularly, we start with a meditation and then a talk, and then questions and answers. answer. But I'd like to start with a little bit of a talk about what I did last night. And I proceeded to tell them what I had done. And then I said, okay, now let's try to have a meditation. (laughs) Let's see if we can calm our minds and quiet our minds. But I felt like I had to do that because the thought was, what if someone sees me? And it was from then on that I said, I don't want to be afraid of anything that I do being found out. I may not voluntarily disclose it, it's none of your business. But that's different than creating secrecy, a false persona. I practice celibacy. I'm not a person. I'm above it. And then they've been stooping someone for three years. So I would rather say that's how I dealt with that and everything else. And saying that I was disappointed in what happened because of the secrecy, and that to this day, while I'm not involved and I haven't been for since '85.
0: None of the people, the officials of the ashram or the foundation will ever honestly deal with that. Well, I mean, the same stuff was happening with Marushi and none of the officials of that organization will deal with it either. It's a puzzlement to me that this stuff happens. and But then again, it isn't. But I, I just try to have the attitude that There's a lot of things I don't understand and basically, as the band sang you know, in the night they brought old Dixie down, you take what you need Mm -hmm. and you leave the rest. I derived tremendous benefit from the whole thing and if there's parts of it that were strange or I, I, I don't know what to make of them, what can I say? And as far as whether these gurus should have been public about what they were doing, to give them a little bit of compassion, I don't know how they could have been. Given the whole hoopla that was built up around them. How could they have made that transition to publicly well, doing well, such I, things?
1: I'm not saying he should have. I'm not a guru. I don't. I'm not within the Indian cultural system. So I just wanted to go. Well, I might teach, live a public life in some way or another. This is how I want to live. And if what I do or what you hear I do discredits me in your mind, we're not a fit anyway. That's fine. Sally, I think at one point said, you know, having a guru like Muktananda is not for sissies. It isn't a safe place. My primary, my predominant feeling about Muktananda was not love, it was terror. I was terrified of him. Because he was such a taskmaster. No, no. Because he was so enormous and immense that it terrified me. Hmm. The enormity of who I saw him as. Maybe it was, was it Moses who saw the burning bush? Yeah. And it probably, you know, it probably went like, whoa, that's heavy. You know, it's like, it,
0: Muthananda for me was this sort of walking burning bush. Well, it's an even better uh, metaphor from the Gita where Arjuna asked to see Lord Krishna's form, you know, and, and, oh, yeah. and he's like totally pooping his pants, it's too much for him. And <laughs> he says, take well, it away, I can't handle it. He just terrified me yeah. because of his
1: immensity, that's all I can say. When I first met him in India 1973 there was about 25 Westerners in the ashram, that was it and then we're talking fast forward toward the end of his life where there are ashrams throughout the world and thousands of people and so on and a big organization of which I was an executive, then you had to go well there's an organizational reality, then there's the sort of spiritual social reality, then there's what to me is really the essence of it, the disciple's relationship to his or her guru. One-to-one, that's what it is. There isn't a guru, in my mind, there's either one's guru or it doesn't matter. I don't see any of the leading teachers out there as gurus or teachers because they're not mine. And for me, there's only my teacher, there's no teacher. I don't think there's a class of teacher. So, for me, it was what happened between me and my guru over a decade that to me is what i was there for what what i focused on what was significant and meaningful even as i ended up participating at a senior level in the organization of it which was easy to get lost in but i still go back to that and so to just to maybe echo what you were saying it's it's really hard to bring a judgment to it if you, if you recognize what that trip is. I don't think living with a guru is a safe adventure. I tried to get away and I couldn't. I don't, I've never, ever once told a person, go find a guru. I'm glad I found a guru. I'm glad I lived with him. I'm
0: glad I experienced what I did. Good. Good answer. Okay, now I have eight questions here that people have sent in and oh. I, I want to make sure to get to them. So we're going to jump around a bit topic-wise because okay. the questions are all over the place. So I'm just going to ask them and new answer and keep in mind we have eight of them and we might also want to talk about five principles of authentic living or something. So let's, will, let's budget will. our time.
1: I will refrain from further rants and I will be a Zen teacher, very succinct, (laughs)
0: five words per answer. Ready, go. You can do more than that. So, first of all, Joseph Bernard from Oregon Coast asks, two questions, one, how does one take their inner growth consciousness and make a positive difference in the world? And you said he had a second question? He does, but they're separate, so let's do the first one first. Is the second one easier? Uh, okay, let's do the second one first. What remains of a person when they examine and eliminate most or all of their beliefs? Who are they then? The second one's harder, right?
1: Joseph is a friend of mine. He's a mm-hmm. teacher and an author. He's a very lovely guy. Because we are an inextricable and inseparable part of the world, even if only at the quantum energetic level. Everything we do has an effect. Everything we do in some way is a tiny pebble thrown into the pond and has a ripple of some kind. So knowing that then brings a sense of responsibility to notice what is the effect we're having through our speech, our thoughts, and our actions. And I think Joseph is, he and I have talked about this, if we're talking about a social impact, How do we take consciousness, not a political ideology as our motivation, but how do we take a spiritual sense of things and bring that into the world as the motivation for social change, which I tried to do for years with that Radical Sages project. I think there's a lot of different levels and ways one could answer. I'll just make it short and say this. Arthur Ashe, the tennis player, ha- has a formula for engagement that I like. Start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. That's how we do it. Because I, I wouldn't recommend, anyway, if, even though I tried to do it once, I wouldn't recommend changing the world or changing this huge, monstrous, big thing out there. It's too big, it's too complex, but we can still move toward a, a shift in a mindset and a policy. Look, 20 years ago, ask any gay friends you had, 20 years ago, if you had said to the, the uh, LGBT community that in 20 years, same-sex marriage will be constitutional legal throughout the country, they'd think you were on acid. <laughs> if 20 years ago, you said there'd be a black president, it'd be impossible, you know, and so on and so on and so on. But what brings those changes about? Well, we can look at it at the macro level, but also at a different level, it's an individual getting together with other individuals, getting together for an evening, doing something, and then connecting to something. So it's, you know, the way I see the world, it's a series of what's next and what's next. Start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. I'll keep it short for now. Sure. Try not to hate the people that you think are the walking devils. Right,
0: right. Yeah, realize that we're all blind men feeling the elephant, and it, it, you know, there's it, it, some validity to their perspective too. It, from their perspective. Yeah.
1: You know, whenever I hear people go, corporations are ruining the world, I'm, I've worked in corporations. There is no such thing as a corporation, the people in the corporations are doing it. It's got to become personalized. And I've met some of the most wonderful people in corporate environments. Mm -hmm. So that is important. Let's stay away from the labeling, try to keep it real, open, and uh, not
0: hate the other people. Yeah, good one. I heard an interesting play on words recently. What's so, so what, so. (laughs) Got it? You've gone all zen on me, Rick. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, what's so? It's like, all right, what's the re- reality of life? Um, so what? what? What's the significance of that? And so, what are we going to do about it? Okay, question number two. I believe it was just question number one that you just answered. Question number two. What remains of a person when they examine and eliminate most or all of their beliefs? Who are they then?
1: That question wouldn't arise when... I'm just trying to use his language when the what is it when the person is uh,
0: when they examine and eliminate most of their beliefs it's like what's left okay. of them I, in other words I guess the implication is if we are largely comprised of what we believe and when we kind of strip all those beliefs okay. away then what's left of us
1: what's left cannot be articulated in the way the question wants it would have to be experienced in a preverbal way by whatever is left after the beliefs disappear. And then there would be a knowing that is not communicable. I'm not being lib. I've really looked at that, and over the years, as you can imagine, those kinds of questions come up all the time, and I hear a lot of teachers also answer
0: it, which I could, except I know that my answer would be false and misleading. Let me ask you about your experience on this point, because this is my experience, and let's see if this helps answer it. And That is, do you find in your experience that um, you know, there's often, if not almost always, a very palpable sense that there's actually no one there uh, and that you're not doing anything, and yet at the very t- same time, uh, paradoxically but in complete compatibility with that, there's a very real sense that there is someone there, and you are doing things, and all this stuff matters. It's, like the, there, it's just a different, different dimensions of a, of a broad spectrum
1: from about three years ago, when I had a series of pony rides to we're, live Yeah, in, we're
0: going to get onto those in a minute. <laughs>
1: I'll just say, I don't want to speak historically, but from about three years ago, I have two two distinct senses of being that aren't reflections of me in any way at all. The, the, the first sensation is silence. With a little bit of this, Sound of like a conch shell on your ear that sort of whoosh, you know, the little sea sound. And by silence, I mean if you've ever been to the desert. Sure, yeah. So that's my experience punctuated by surges of Shakti or, or, or energy in the wake of which I do something. And honestly, that's all I know. That's all I experienced from three years ago. And so when I hear questions that I can vaguely remember asking myself, I can only say at some point the question won't arise, and the fact that it doesn't arise is the answer, which is not the kind of answer that the mind wants when it asks the question. But
0: but I think that thing you just said about silence makes sense to me, and it may be your way of expressing what I just expressed, which is that, that the deep kind of... Desert-like silence has a quality to it of there being nothing here and nothing going on, and yet there's this sort of emergence from that of expressions of shakti. Yeah. I think you use the word shakti, creative That's impulses, activities, and so on. That's right. That's exactly how.
1: I, so I, sometimes if I'm laying in bed watching TV, I'll sort of you know watch the TV, then I'll notice my legs on the bed, and I'll just go, "Wow, look, look at those. What is it?" And I go, "Oh." It's Dude, those are your legs, you know, so sometimes it's like that, but I used to be able to reflect on myself. No, no, in some way, you know, how am I doing, what's left. I don't have any point of view from which I can reflect on me in any way at all. There's silence and surges of Shakti and action. And if I want to, I can go to my mind, which is always active. If I want to drop into a free movie, I can, you know, I can
0: certainly go there. But I usually don't spend that much time there anymore. Got to throw in a little humor here. There was a there was a Far Side commercial uh, cartoon, Far Side cartoon, where these two insects were out on a date, and they had just come home. And the the boy insect is saying good night to the girl, and he says, "Well." I guess I should kiss her, but where are her lips? I wonder if those do hicke <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if those do hickeys are her lips. <laughs> He's like, these insects with all these gangly things. You know,
1: Rick, <laughs> that's not funny. That's that's the story of my whole actual romantic life. <laughs> Which is why I'm old and alone. I could never I could never figure out the basic stuff. <laughs>
0: Uh, You want to elaborate on that, or should we move on? (laughs) No,
1: this this one we'll move on from. (laughs) Okay. I don't want people feeling sorry for me, although, you know. I think I
0: can relate. Okay, your sister brought up the question of, I would love it if you could speak about what you experienced or learned from having stage 4 lung cancer, and we're going to talk about pony rides now. And first of all, how in the hell did you get lung cancer? Were you a smoker, or did you live around too much incense?
1: I was not a smoker. I asked my oncologist that. And because of the type of lung cancer I have, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's something like 10% of all lung cancer patients have this particular kind. Mm-hmm. And 80% of the people who have my type of lung cancer get it from envir- from environmental or other sources, not from smoking. So like I asked- Living why, in
0: Los Angeles, for instance. Well,
1: I grew up in Italy post-war. Could have mm-hmm. been asbestos in the building things. I lived in India for, for six, seven years. Mm-hmm. I asked him, he said, Robert, I don't know. He said, I don't know how long you've had it. I don't know how you got it. It could have been from 300 things. Yeah. And by the way, my oncologist is the director of oncology at Cedar Sinai. He's a very specialist in
0: lung cancer. He doesn't know. I don't know. All right. Well, let's talk about it. I mean, as much time as you want to spend on it and this this pony ride thing i presume you're saying that it was the effect of chemo and it has had a kind of a profound influence on you
1: that's my baby sister sandra who for a year became like a team of healthcare workers she lives next to me i was totally out of it for about a year she'd come over 20 times a day i wouldn't be alive if it weren't for her so i'll just say that when i was diagnosed in early January of 2011, I was in Australia, and they said, because I'd been having a lot of back pain and we couldn't sort it out, and it got worse and worse, and then I, I went to the hospital, and they said, you've got stage four lung cancer, your, the tumors are riddled throughout your, your spine, hips, and pelvis, your spine is about to collapse because the bone's been eaten away by tumors, and there's nothing we can do, statistically, six months, seven months, you're gone. So I came back to the States uh, thinking, well, I'll arrange my affairs, I was in a lot of pain, and uh, moved to L.A., got some insurance, went to an oncologist here. I had radiation treatments in Australia. Lucky you could get the insurance. Well it was, it was serendipity, There's, this is, this story has miracle after miracle along the way because I didn't have it when I got back. Mm. The hospital actually had a, a program to help people without insurance that I found out about. So anyway, my, when I first met my oncologist he said based on the reports that had been forwarded to him from Australia, he thought that I would be paralyzed below the waist and in a wheelchair and I was on a walker, but, so it was that bad. So we went into a series of chemotherapy treatments. I don't want to say that cancer was responsible or chemotherapy or anything that was related to cancer and the treatments produced these pony rides to oblivion, which I'm about to tell you. I think it was a trigger or a catalyst, almost a kind of depot initiation, it was an event And what determines the nature of the event is your response. So, I've got this tumors everywhere, my spine might collapse, I'm in chemotherapy, I'm supposed to die, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, I still can play the game of what am I going to respond, how am I going to respond, from where will I respond? I converted chemotherapy infusions to infusions of primal Shakti. And every time I'd go to the hospital and get them, my sister would come, I'd put on chanting music and go, this is fantastic. This is not chemo, this is not toxic, this is not, you know, going to kill every living thing in me. This is a gift of the Goddess. This is pure Kundalini Shakti energy coming into me to heal me. That's, you know. I just figured, You know, like, well, why not? I might as well, yeah, right, I don't, I don't to have loose. to play the other game. So I would do that, and I would come back to my little apartment here in L.A., and I would be out of it for a week, two weeks. By out of it, I mean I would wake up periodically to go to the bathroom, and that was, my sister would come over, wake me up to feed me, I wouldn't remember. When I asked my oncologist about how other people reacted to, uh, to the, the chemo and the pills that I was taking, nothing ever like this came up. They would talk about loss of appetite, which happened to me, they'd talk about depression or this, this, but they weren't these long, shamanic journeys that would go out of my being, whatever, out of me in some way, and vacate the premises for days and days in a kind of oblivion, but there was still a hint of consciousness in there, but it was nothing else. And it would come back, and as as my body would kind of come back to life, I would realize that a lot of what had gone on that journey didn't come back, and that these pony rides to oblivion, which is what they felt like, would be post-chemo or Shakti infusion, come back. Everything that was in me as me, in any way you want to talk about it, was taken away, and at some point it would come back, with less of what started that journey until one day my eyes open and I just there's no there's no me any there's no there there and the image that came because I tend to think of images and metaphors was my older brother goes on trips and when he goes he's very meticulous he's an attorney hi Rick and he makes these albums of every trip that starts with the date that he leaves, and it's a a chronicle of the journey with pictures and notes and tickets and restaurant menus and so on. And so I imagine my life as being one of these long albums, except that there were no pages anymore, there was no chronology, there was no history, there was no remember when, There there was no memory, there was no narrative, there was nothing, except silence, just sound. The sound of silence, and surges of Shakti. There was there was nothing else that I could notice or be a part of or talk about, and that's
0: continued. So let me make this a little bit more concrete, because I think okay. some people, I know it sounds probably, some people might be spacing out right now, trying to understand what you're saying. You would do the chemo, and it would send you off into these pony rides to oblivion, and yet they were sh- shamanic journeys. So, oblivion implies blackout, you didn't know anything. Shamanic journey implies you were kind of experiencing different realms or something. And these would last for quite some time, and you'd come back. So, if I could distill this into some specific questions. What exactly did you experience during them? Were you conscious that you were experiencing this? Or was it in retrospect, when you kind of woke up, that you remembered, whoa, like a dream at night, I just had this fantastic experience? Let let me start with those Uh, questions.
1: Thank you. And by the way, I have been trying for three years to language this without much success, I admit that. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have experience when I was gone. You were out of it. I was out of it. It was an oblivion. Mm-hmm. When I said shamanic, I've never actually said that before, but it come only because when I would come, when I would sort of reawaken, I did have an awareness that something in me was different that I, something had happened there. I didn't know what it was, but I'd go, Monty Python did a movie where one, one of the movies he was guarding a bridge as a knight, mm-hmm. and he got into a fight, and they'd sword fight, and he'd cut an arm off, and he'd go, ah, oh, that's nothing, and he'd cut the other arm off and the leg, and to his other thing, I felt like, <laughs> I, when I would go out on these journeys, I would come back with one arm last no until <laughs> until I was nothing. So it was in the realization that I was different in some experiential, if not articulate way, until the, the final journey, and when I was able to move around, either my mind was working and I was so f- at a distance from it that it didn't matter, or my mind stopped working. The predominant thing that I was aware of, which continues today, is that language ceased to be a medium for communicating anything existential. By which I mean, we could talk about enlightenment, realization, non-duality, duality, duality, whatever. And any conversation about spirituality or existential matters didn't make any sense to me at all.
0: There were two features of these Pony revs: Time disappeared. And language collapsed. And it didn't make sense, not because you didn't understand the terms and concepts, because you've been living those for decades. That's right. But because... Thank you for giving the time for this, because really, it is.
1: I mean, insofar as what I've experienced has any value to people, this is probably the most significant thing, mm-hmm. which I'm still working out. Can you tell me quickly, Rick, a time when you have meditation, lovemaking, being in a desert, whatever? When you have been totally absorbed in utter stillness and silence, can you just bring one of those experiences up?
0: Yeah, for me it would have to be my deepest meditations. I also had something in a dream one time that was very, very powerful and the most transformative experience I ever had, and I, I woke up out of it with such a deep silence, it was indescribable. But anyway, I mean … No, no, hold right there, hold right there, yeah. hold right there. Mm-hmm. so I, I, you said …
1: I woke with an indescribable silence. Right. If someone had talked to you, asked you to explain something or explain something to you when you were in that state, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have made any sense to
0: you at all. I mean, I could still talk with people and understand what they were saying, if that's what you're getting at. Um... If you go right into the core of that silence,
1: Mm -hmm. right when you're there, and someone came and asked you about some existential question, or so on. My guess is it would be really hard to understand what they're talking about because a lot of the meaning and significance of what we say is in the world of language, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: not in what I call the world of silence, or what others might call pure awareness or consciousness. My experience of it is silent. So, to me, they're two entirely different domains. They're entirely different dimensions in which, if we take language away, if we take certain language or all of language away, we have to we have to orient to an entirely other mo- modality of being and experiencing and expressing.
0: Yeah, I, they are different dimensions, but I've found over the years that they've gotten more and more and more and more integrated. Um, yes, so that. In the midst of dynamic activity, there's silence. In the midst of silence, even, there's dynamism, uh, in, sort of inherent within it. And, um, you know, so it's not an either-or situation.
1: No, I, that's where I used to be with stuff, and I might end up there again. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying something a little different, uh-huh. which is, if I place myself in language, then, yes, I can communicate in a certain way. But what I've realized is that that language itself is actually a a kind of dialect of silence. It's a different language altogether. When Joseph asked the question about what's remaining when all the beliefs go, well, you could make up any answer you want, because the actual answer can only be experienced before language. And there's a knowing that's pre-verbal, so what I'm saying is, Look, you and I have been talking for two hours. My professional motto is, have mouth, will travel. I love to talk. But the, the difference is, in that final return from the journey, when I couldn't find any self to refer to or to reflect upon, for months, I couldn't understand what anyone was saying, because I wasn't in language.
0: Mm.
1: I, didn't, I wasn't living where
0: language
1: is significant.
0: So you were kind of residing at a level that, is, that precedes language, that's behind, that's deeper than language, yes?
1: Well that's how I would say it, I mean I can't, yeah. I'm not a scientist, I'm not a neurobiologist, so I'm only grappling for words to express what my experience was and continues to be, yeah. because Muktananda said something many, many years ago that suddenly clicked in, he said, because he was asked questions all the time, mostly he would answer, Sometimes I remember he would say, "If you go to the place in you from where the question arises, you will know." So that where did the questions arise? And then, you, then you find out it arises where thoughts arise, where everything from a, a, a yeah, kind I could of say the source s- of thought or something source, and then you realize most of the questions that are problematic for us in life or on a spiritual path in life are problems in the world of language if we can get to that source place or the place of silence a pre-verbal reality in which is intelligent and creative and expressive but you know maybe it's like the zen thing it's the thing itself it's not the name of it then most of the issues and the questions that we ask and want answered in satsang would never arise which doesn't mean you don't know the answer to it it just means you're living in a place where that question doesn't arise. Who would you be when all the beliefs are gone? doesn't even make sense to me.
0: Yeah, I think that's pretty clear. But, I mean, almost all language, if not all, is, is a, it's a symbolic representation. I mean, if we say apple, you know, that sound has little or nothing to do with the actuality of an apple. But it's we agree upon that sound as being That's right. something so we can talk about so we can talk about apples.
1: That's right. There's a correspondence, but when we start getting into abstracts the, the abstract part of language, mm-hmm. concepts and what they point to, then it requires a kind of agreement about what these symbolic sounds represent. Yeah. And if they don't represent an apple, you know, or a headphone, patriotism. What is patriotism? Right. Well, I don't know. We've got to have another two-hour conversation about that because it's a sound.
0: There view. are many, many interpretations of the There's sound.
1: There's a thousand. I guess the thing I'm saying is that we tend not to realize that we make up and invest meaning and significance in a word from our own point of view, but we think the word is that. We think the word is that. Okay. And I'm going, no, okay, sorry, enough of that.
0: So just to, to wrap this point up, would it be true to say, in summary, the chemo kicked you into a place from which your whole conceptual verbal framework was kind of dismantled, and um, you no longer took for granted the concepts that people, that words represent, or the representation of, of, of actualities by words, because you, you were realizing experientially that those words are very faint, blurry shadows of that to which they're, they're ultimately pointing or referring, and, and you were so deeply established in the experience of that, that those shadows didn't have much traction for you. Probably I only got about it, 10% on the mark no, there, but No, 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 no,
1: if you had been able to tell me that Three years ago, you'd have saved me a lot of time (laughs) trying to figure that's no, that's not that's about 90% of what happened. When I hear you, I'm going, Yes, 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 maybe, yeah, no, 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 yes, yes, yes. I mean, we've got to give 10% to the mystery, sure, but that's exactly uh, what I experienced in the simplest language. Okay, good, that's that's
0: exactly part of what I try to do is. Mind meld with the people I interview and and it. understand it, what actually what they're saying, you know, or trying to say. And I often repeat back to them what I think they said to see if it resonates, to see if I have the right sense of it. Because if I can if I can get it, and, and maybe the audience can get it also.
1: Well, usually I'm pretty good at articulating things, but the last three years I have to admit I'm like, don't ask me, ask the horse. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm, supposed, I'm supposed to be dead, you know, don't ask me anything. I'm just happy enough to be alive.
0: Let's do another question. Miriam sure. Negre from Barcelona, Spain asks,
1: Oh, dear Miriam.
0: Uh, when we find ourselves in situations where speaking truthfully creates a great conflict to the other person and blocks the negotiation, how can we proceed? For example, a conflict with an ex-couple dealing with the issue of uh, their child. And I'm kind of reminded of uh, Patanjali's saying from his yamas, Satyam Bru- Bruat. What is it? Satyam Bruyat, Priyam Bruyat, speak the sweet truth. So you, you you emphasize speaking the truth, and we talked earlier about you know what you told your students after attending that orgy. You know, Patanjali seems to be advocating, yeah, you don't want to just sort of be blunt and in your face in speaking the truth. You you want to speak the truth which is sweet. What do you say to that?
1: The first thing I do, Rick, whenever I'm working in any situation, and, and I feel like I'm working as a in the sense of answering the question, is I ask a lot of questions. I don't ever just take the first question or situation as as what it is. It's always more inquiry so I can more fully understand the subtleties and complexity of a scenario. If Miriam asked me that question, I would have a series of questions that I would ask before I would offer anything.
0: Mm-hmm, that's a good idea. Yeah.
1: So I would just say that, and she's a good friend of mine who's two-and-a-half-year-old daughter I'm wildly in love with. Mm -hmm. I'll just say this, is we've got to be careful from the labeling and categorizing of anything. And the five principles to me unhook me from the need to exist in any kind of predetermined manner. In other words, yes, to speak the truth sweetly sounds like a good thing but sometimes the situation is that's not going to be appropriate or effective. And what does speaking truthfully mean? I, I speak truthfully as in I feel like I'm transparent and open so that my motives and intentions are visible to all. But I do personal coaching, I do group work, I give talks and I have to be able to pick and choose what to say that's going to have the best positive effect. So that might be what you're calling speaking truthfully, sweetly. But for me, I need all this more information to know what to say. The the one thing that, I had a webinar just last night about this, one thing that people will use as a reason to not speak their truth, which is how I work with it, is I don't want to offend or upset or hurt someone else. Right. But if your intention is to not do that, if your intention is not uh, wrapped in being right and making someone else wrong, if what you're trying to do is bring your inner truth out into the world to be seen in as skillful a manner as possible, if someone takes offense at that or their feelings get hurt, it's probably on them to work that out. If we're going to withhold what is true for us, if we're going to move in the world behind a mask or a false persona in fear that our inner authenticity, expansion, truth speaking is going to in some way be hurtful to us or others, the game's over. We've got to be willing to trust the integrity of our truth speaking, trust the integrity of our authenticity, trust the integrity of our engagement and participation, people are going to get offended, their feelings will get hurt, they'll get insulted.
0: You know, some people just are very brash and in-your-face and rude, and they think they're being truthful, and they're not, they're being brash and, and rude. Well, some, they might sometimes things are better left unsaid, you know?
1: That's also true, and someone might be speaking the truth and being brash and so on, that's called skillful means. That can also be, yeah you know, skillful means we need to use, but, but what happens is people tend to be afraid of their own sort of in, inner, uh, I call what I do, authentic self-expression. So, we want to take what is true and real in us, not as being right, or Truth, capital T, but what is it that we truly think and feel and want and don't want, and can I bring that out in an honest and open manner without trying to be right, without afraid of being wrong, not to criticize or condemn, but I'm going to make the first move of the chess game, being real, honest, open,
0: connected, unafraid. That's truthful speaking. Mm. And then we'll see what happens after that. You know, one thought that occurs to me is that if you really want to speak truth, it might help to be established in truth, to actually sort of be in a deep integrated place within yourself and and grounded in some deep level that's, that's more real than the superficial and, yes. and then truth speaking will kind of be spontaneous you won't have to work at it that much
1: well truth for me is it's it's a very loaded word and i'm not talking about established spiritual truth i'm actually talking an individual's truth mm-hmm. but i totally agree with you in the sense that we have to know what that is and that is an excavation beneath the surface-conditioned wine. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely agree. Let me throw another question at If Phyllis from Boulder City, Nevada um, wants to hear you explain the difference between being silent, not talking, and being the Silence, capital S, that which is already within but usually is never tapped.
1: In the first couple of years of being in India, in the ashram, I went native. And for a few months I decided I wasn't going to talk. So I got, I got a chalkboard, and I slung it over my shoulders, and I had a piece of chalk, and I wouldn't talk. I drove, I drove everybody I, crazy.
0: I've, I've seen those people; very
1: annoying. <laughs> I, I was very annoying. I fully admit that. I didn't speak, and in not speaking, I was able then to see the scream, the screams, and the rants that were going on in my mind that would normally be dissipated through my mouth, but weren't, so I went, well, there's a lot of noise in there. And over the course, I think it was two months, something like that, it would start to dissipate. But it was really hard, because you're letting it go. So that's where I first recognized the difference between not speaking and inner silence, so. Not speaking is an interesting experiment.
0: So you can, times, Maybe 10 days for me.
1: That's all. Yeah. What I do sometimes is I'll assign my speaking students with a word allowance. I go, for the next week, if you can do it professionally, for the next week you get 50 words a day, whatever, just to develop the awareness and understand the concept. So not speaking is not related to silence at all, other than it could trigger an awareness of what's necessary.
0: A yogi in a cave could have a very noisy mind, a stockbroker could have a very silent mind. That's right, in, in my view. Although a silent life does, like you were saying when you were using the chalkboard, does tend yeah. to cultivate a more silent mind. Which actually leads on to the next question, let me actually ask yeah. this one. Jerry Bernstein from San Francisco asks, I understand uh, you've, you know Jerry? <laughs> I this is like all your buddies are asking these questions. I understand <laughs> you've spent years involved in some kind or other of formal practice to diminish the chatter of your mind stream. From this effort, have you found any approaches or developed any advice that you think is more effective than another toward this goal? Yes. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm not
1: laughing at anybody or anything. All right, two things briefly, and I'll follow up with Jerry when I next talk with him. Follow what is an authentic impulse in you toward a practice, a hobby you know, wherever you're naturally drawn to a place you find some peace and focus. Jerry is, among other things, a nature photographer. Mm -hmm. When I talk to him about what it's like, that's a spiritual practice for him because of what happens when he's out in nature taking photographs. What I tend to do with people these days is facilitate a conversation whereby an individual or group can have a chance to recognize where in themselves they already experience silence, peace, equanimity, and expansion. And I've never met, Rick, a person who can't go there. I mean, I've developed a very flexible languaging because i worked in companies, I've worked a lot of places where I couldn't use ashram language. So what I try to do is facilitate a conversation where in their terms they will tell me what it's like and then I'll go, great, now you tell me, since this experience is yours, you have it, it's internal, it's intrinsic, even if triggered by something else, not how do you get there, but what do you do to cover over what you've told me is already there, which is a different conversation. So I'll I'll just let that stand, because rather than say there's a practice, I'll say the practice is to notice how in your life you sometimes spontaneously connect with that, recognize it's an intrinsic capacity,
0: and then what do you do to pretend that you're not who you've already seen that you are? Raphael from Portland, Oregon asks, how do you see the role of personal work in the life of a a spiritual teacher, and what personal work are you engaged with currently? Let's try to keep the answers relatively short because we're kind of... okay. Yeah.
1: Thank you. You know, I didn't speak for about three years, Rick, so I'm very excited. I'm making up for lost time. I'm making up for lost time. Well, I don't see myself as a spiritual teacher, so I can't answer personally. But what I sort of work on, I prefer to say, what do I noticing? What do I pay attention to? It's the five principles.
0: Mm-hmm. And let's, since you mentioned that, uh, and since I did want to cover these briefly, or not briefly, but I think we'll have to cover them briefly, uh, what are the five principles? Just, and say just a sentence or two about them.
1: The five principles are be present, pay attention, listen deeply, speak truthfully, and act creatively. That's 50 years of hard slogging there's not much content in them, because they point to a source. The reason I wrote the book very quickly is, I suddenly realized that for decades, i had been giving people my content, what I, my opinions, my insights, you know, and so on, and I thought, but I, they all come from a certain place, why don't I just start telling people to go to the place I go to, and then get your own stuff, which is probably going to be more relevant and appropriate anyway. And I said, okay, how do I do that? And it was just that. So this is how to access or live from Source Consciousness. Be present means to not be defined or determined by the thought stream, thoughts and emotions. Which means that there's a place outside the thought stream that you can live in and from. I call it silence. Leave your thoughts alone, leave your leave everything alone, it's just you don't live there, you live and act from this place. So when you're no longer blinkered by your thoughts, your extreme emotions and your beliefs, you now begin to pay attention from silence. Wow, let me notice the world that I can see for the first time. When I used to study Aikido years and years ago, I learned that in Aikido, on the mat, you want to have a one degree focus, pay full attention to what's coming right here, while simultaneously maintaining 360 degree awareness. Hmm. This is what noticing is, paying attention, inside and out, to develop a field of constant noticing in detail. Where's the 50 cents? Which moves to deep listening. Some people might call it prayer, meditation. Deep listening to me is when you become a living receptor, a receiving, listening carefully, not just to yourself and to other people, but ear to the ground, distant horseshoes, distant galaxies. It's, it's where you become open to receive all kinds of impressions, inside experiences, information, from multiple levels because we're now open to do that. It's a little bit what you said a moment ago, Rick, about you can't speak your truth until you know your truth. So deep listening is where you get down beneath the conditioned, busy mind, and go, ah, oh, there's some truth here. Then in order to now take that sort of internal reality, be present, pay attention, listen deeply, into the world, well, we got to start speaking it, don't we? And then we do something which, speaking truthfully, is not bullying. It is skillfully and elegantly bringing what we hear in the depths of openness into the world. And then we move to the place where spiritual folks tend to be really action-averse, act creatively. Now, take an action on behalf of, these, of this rich, inner, deep, open, connected life so that your actions actually become a bigger advocate for who you are than what you say. I'm always interested in what's the behavioral corollary of something. If you know absolute reality, I'd like you to stop talking and let me just watch you for a few days to see if I can see how it's distinct from anyone else. And if I can't, good for you but i'm not interested so those are the five principles which is really point this is where you need to go i don't want to confuse more content my opinions are irrelevant my experiences are not helpful this is where i've gone this is where i've uh, how i've lived and i believe if you practice these if you embody these you're going to have a rocking good time
0: that's great and one thing that I gained from everything you just said, and you did say it at one point in, in all that, is you know there's so many self-help things in the world and so on, and, and they all kind of like are analogous to painting the roses red, you know, uh, to use that from Alice in Wonderland, or to watering the leaves on a tree, as opposed to watering the root of the roses or the tree, getting right down to the actual yeah. source of all this stuff. You know, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else should be added unto thee, established in yoga, perform action, as the Gita puts it, if you can really kind of get established in in that deep wellspring of of creativity and all other good stuff, then most of these things are just going to flourish. And it does help to have some attention on them, to culture them, like you might need to prune the roses, uh, but at least you need to water the root of the roses for them to be healthy. So you you need to establish your awareness in that sort of deep level from which all this springs.
1: Well, I used to love Rumi and Kabir and different poets like that. Mm -hmm. But after a while, I got tired of listening to their expressions of source. I said, well, I'd like to be my own poet. So I don't really care what you know, where did you know it from? Where did you go to know what you know? Where did you go to be as expressive as you are? And I figured out, for me, these five principles, Is how I'd been doing it even before I articulated it. And it it is to answer Raphael's question, it's my practice. It's to to remain consciously within the framework of these five principles. And of course, breathing is a
0: good practice to try to keep that going every day. Yeah, otherwise you die.
1: Uh, Something like
0: that. (laughs) All right, here's one from Gina in Westminster, California. In today's world of instant gratification, with the desire by many for that lightning bolt of immediate and profound awareness with little effort, can you speak to the value of everyday discipline and appreciation of the small amounts of understanding that, over time and with practical application, bring us to a clearer awareness of our true hearts? Thank you.
1: I think we've talked about that, about discipline. I, I will just say again, almost everything I've learned and experienced at any level, I can attribute in some way to a discipline. I'm not going to say necessarily a spiritual practice that has a spiritual outcome, but a discipline against which you can see your mind, which to me is really the crux of the whole spiritual game anyway, and I also have a lot of respect for people who over years have done something to acquire a great uh, artistry. You know, I was watching a a, a video of Misty Copeland, who was just announced as a prima ballerina at the uh, American Ballet Company, and how she has attained that level of skill for years and years and years. There's there's no direct path to becoming (laughs) prima ballerina. There's no direct path to becoming Buddy Rich. And I just happen to have high regard for people that do that. George Leonard, who's an author and Aikido teacher, wrote a book about just showing up for Aikido practice every day for 40 years. He said, you, you, you get to these plateaus where nothing's happening. Just do it. Then there's going to be a spurt that you can only experience because you've done this day after day after day, I'm old school, I'm all for discipline.
0: Me too. And even those who have spontaneous unexpected awakenings, without having had any uh, discipline or anything, you know, maybe it's past life discipline they did, but, but still even then, it seems to me it's often helpful for them to create a container for it and to to begin to establish some discipline and and to kind of gain some understanding of what they have undergone.
1: Just go drive a cab in New York for six months and see what happens, and if you're still permanently established in Absolute Consciousness, knock yourself out. Part of the discipline is you get tested along the way.
0: Yeah. Someone just said our, our live stream stopped working. I'm not sure why. Um, but oh, we're, we're almost done. So the one final question here. Yes. Um, and that is Judith Ann Napo from St. Gallen, Switzerland asks.
1: Oh, Switzerland.
0: In another interview you said, if I remember correctly, that we can easily <laughs> access the creative consciousness in the self from which place all the content has come the place where one can find out exactly what one needs for each moment of the journey. And one can do this by following your five principles. My question is, when I am being present, paying attention and listening deeply, for instance, while sitting in silence as part of a morning spiritual practice, how will I know which of the thoughts or chain of words or inspiration coming to me is the one to act on? Mm. Will it it have a different sound from my usual thought Mm -hmm. stream? How will I be able to recognize it as the voice of my soul or as the voice of the creative consciousness in myself? All right, quickly, I
1: will say, over time, we get to discern a textural difference between thought and the impulses of silence, which she's calling her soul. Textural, as in cardstock versus rice paper. You can actually feel the difference over time. That's one thing. The other thing is the, the reason the Speak Truthfully Act creatively are, are such important components is when we put something into play through speech and action, if it isn't supported by Shakti, but by that sort of deep energy, not just the silence, but the energetic aspect of silence, we're not going to get very far with it. So sometimes I don't know in my consciousness, I go, well, I've got this feeling, this impulse, I wanna join a mentoring group in LA and mentor kids. It sounds like a good idea, I've got time to do it. Should I, shouldn't, I'm not quite, so I do it. I put it into play. And then the action of it is a feedback loop that if I continue to be present, pay attention, listen deeply, if I'm at that level, that will then tell me if that's really coming from a deep place and I need to do it or no, let's, let's back out of it. So the action is another way to get feedback about the different place in us from where an action can originate as well as over time discerning the, the textural difference. Yeah.
0: I'll give you an example. My inspiration to do this show was originally to have it as a talk show on a local radio station that has a 10-mile radius, and I was taking steps to try to make that happen, and they were being blocked at every stage. I was getting absolutely no cooperation. Yeah. And then finally, when, when the emphasis shifted to sort of making it a bigger thing and putting it on the internet and getting it out there, then all kinds of support and, and all started, That's it. Yeah. Which you wouldn't have figured out
1: unless you had put it into play. Yeah, it
0: had to start somewhere.
1: You have to start. But if you had, if it just wasn't working, wasn't working, wasn't working, and finally it petered out, then you know. So I'm also big on, well, sometimes you walk your way through life. Sometimes you listen your way through life. Sometimes you speak your way. If we're being constant with those principles, then everything we say and do becomes
0: feedback mechanisms for where are you living from? I think it was Goethe or someone said that, you know, you have to just begin an action and then all kinds of support and means and stuff will come to your disposal, which is just not going to happen unless you actually begin. Yeah, that's right. That's how I feel about it. Good. Well, um, I am also kind of a have-mouth-will-travel kind of guy, and uh, (laughs) we could probably go on for another two and a half hours, but I think we better wrap it up. So, thanks. This has been great. Well, thank
1: you. Thank yeah. you, Rick. Thank you for the people who wrote in, who suggested me. I apologize if my answers were long and rambling, but please forgive a guy who loves to talk and hasn't had much opportunity to have intelligent conversations. So, Rick, thank you.
0: Hey, hang out with the wrong crowd. Um, well, I don't hang out with any crowd. I've been in my pony rides to oblivion for three years. Yeah. Are you off chemo
1: now? Oh yeah, yeah. I have been, I still take what's called targeted uh, therapy medicine, mm-hmm. a pill every day that's supposed to keep the core tumor from metastasizing again, although every time I see my doctor, he says, you know, Robert, one day that medicine won't work and the tumors will come back, and I'm going, okay, well, when that happens, we'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge. Well, when they
0: we were come. wrong the first time, maybe they'll be wrong this time. Yeah, and I don't particularly care one way or the other. Yeah, you'll be fine. Well, I hope you live long and prosper, how do you do that? I can't, but thank you for that blessing, (laughs) I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for inviting me, and 300 talks to me shows a level of devotion and dedication and persistence that I think really needs to be honored and recognized over and over, because I'm just doing this one talk with you and I'm out, but this is not next, you've got another, and you prepare in between and you have a team of people that help you. So, for whoever's listening to me speak, Rick ends with a pitch for donations. I'm saying, give him some money to help him do this and send in some notes of deep appreciation. Don't take it for
0: granted. Thanks. One guy sent in three hundred dollars the other day, and we thought, "Wow, three hundred dollars!" And then we thought, "I bet you it's because we just did three hundred interviews." And he thought, "Okay, they're worth a dollar a piece," so that was cool. All right, well, thanks. Let me just make some general wrap-up points that I always make. Anyone who's gotten this far in the interview probably knows that you know this, and well, I do know that this is one in a series. The series is ongoing. We have them scheduled almost through the end of the year already. Uh, And if you'd like to be notified each time a new one is made available, then there's a place on the website for that. It's obvious. It says join the mailing list. You get about one email a week. There is an audio podcast, which I was having trouble with for months, but has been fixed. And so you can subscribe to that. There's the donate button, which you just mentioned. I'll be putting up information about you, links to your website, links to your books and so on. And there's also the past interviews menu, which you see on the website, under which you'll see the, all the old interviews categorized in about five different ways. so You can explore that. So thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. Next week is Guy Finley, and I'm already halfway through listening to a whole bunch of stuff about him. See you then.